Um, this morning, we're going to be looking at Philippians chapter 3. And as you're turning there, um, I, I want you to know I thought about changing my sermon and doing a Father's Day sermon, um, kind of like what they sometimes do for Mother's Day. And as I was thinking about it, I was like, you know what? I think this is actually very appropriate. Um, as we look at Philippians chapter 3, we're going to be looking at the purpose of life. Um, but ultimately, when we look at what Paul is telling us in this passage this morning, I don't think there could be a much better passage for fathers today. When we look at trusting, knowing, and worshiping Christ, if I could give one encouragement, um, and this is not only to fathers, but to all of you, fathers specifically, what I would say for you is there is absolutely nothing better that you could possibly do for your family for your wife, for your children, then to know, trust, and to worship Christ. If you're walking with Christ, so many of the other details don't matter. They aren't going to care how much money you're making. They're not going to care about the size of the house or what else you're doing for provision and the other burdens and responsibilities that we often feel as fathers, which those are appropriate to feel. But if you're worshiping Christ, your entire family is going to be radically transformed because of that. And we're going to see some of that in this passage this morning. We're going to focus on verses 7 and 8. But I want us to read verses 1 through 11 of Philippians 3 for context. So most people are asking the questions, why am I here? What is the meaning of life? What is the purpose of life? And this morning, we're going to see that the three reasons why you are here, the purpose of life and the goals that I have for you are to trust Christ, to know Christ, and to worship Christ. Let's begin in verse 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs. Beware of evil workers, beware of the false circumcision, for we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and the glory in glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, of the Hebrew, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ, and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. 
Dear Heavenly Father, as we study this passage this morning, I pray that your Holy Spirit would convict our hearts. God, I pray that regardless of where each and every person here this morning is coming from, what their background is, the type of week they've had, the type of day they've had, their current season of life, where, whether it's father, mother, whether it's a young, um, a young person, teenager, child, regardless of what they are doing in their life, I pray that you would use your word to convict them, to grow us, to direct our attention to you so that you would have our hearts, that you would have our worship and our trust and that we would know you and that every person in this room would walk with you. We love you, Lord, in your name we pray. Amen. So in the first seven verses of this chapter, Paul included a warning to the Philippians. There was a group of people who were teaching that if you did enough good things, you could earn salvation, that you could earn favor before God. This is called legalism. Some of you might have heard that, and some people may have actually accused you of legalism. But to clarify, legalism is not when you try to do good things. Legalism is just not avoiding bad movies or not drinking alcohol. Someone might say, wow, you're a legalist, you're a fundamentalist, you don't do these things. That's not legalism. What legalism is when you try to do good things expecting that you can earn your way to heaven. It's actually one of the most common ways of thinking in the entire world. Almost every religion in the world has a legalistic perspective. If I do this set of things, whoever God is, wherever he is, is going to let me in to whatever I think heaven is. And Paul he had a list of all of these things that he thought would save him. We see the list. It's that he was circumcised the eighth day. He was of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law. He was found blameless. And at that time, at that culture, everything in life was connected. People would have looked at Paul and thought, Wow, that guy has everything. He has everything. If anyone could earn their way to heaven, it it would have been him. They would have thought because he was so successful that God loved him the most. That's why he was blessed outwardly. That's why he was such a successful man. If salvation were attainable through personal actions and outward obedience to God then Paul would have been set. But that brings us to verses 7 and 8 where we're going to focus this morning. Look at verse 7. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. So the first goal or purpose for our life that we're going to look at this morning is to trust Christ. Paul is saying there is nothing else that is worth trusting in than Jesus Christ. 
why would Paul be so quick to give up everything that he'd once trusted in? What Paul was against was the idea that that list of things could have possibly made him good enough in the eyes of God. When he came to Christ, he'd been faced with the shocking reality that he actually still needed a Savior, even though he looked pretty good on the outside. Jesus called Pharisees like Paul whitewashed tombs. Think about that imagery for a second. A whitewashed tomb. That's actually incredibly graphic. A tomb is something that contains something that is decomposing that is dead. When Jesus approached the Pharisees, he was saying, that's exactly what you're like. You look pretty good on the outside, but on the inside, you are decomposing, you are rotten. There is nothing that is living within you, spiritually speaking. And in verse 7, Paul said, those things, what was he referring to? He, he was referring to his heritage and obedience to the law. He was pointing those particular things, but then in verse 8, he now says, all things are counted loss, referring to everything apart from Christ. Why? Look at verse 7. Paul used the past tense to refer to the moment of his conversion. Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss. So the moment he was saved was the moment that Paul realized that his resume of accomplishments had no possible means of salvation. He had to confront that everything that he had placed his hope in, that was worthless. Could you imagine being on the road to Damascus to hear the audible voice of God, to have him speak to you and realize that you don't have a relationship with him? And he says, why are you persecuting me? I don't know you. He's like, what? What do you mean? Look at this list. I've been doing everything. My whole life has been about you. And God's saying, no, you don't know me. Paul realized that legalism and trying to use external works had not brought him any closer to God. He wasn't good enough. And then in verse 8, Paul uses the present tense, I count all things to be lost. So before in verse 7, he says, I have counted. And now he says in verse 8, I count. And what he is saying is that none of the religious achievements or efforts to keeping the law mattered to God before he was saved. And then now, after salvation, literally everything in life is worth less than knowing Christ. It's Paul's way of basically saying, why in the world would I waste any of my time or money or resources on anything else other than knowing Christ or than that which is eternal? Why would I ever place any of my trust in actions that couldn't save me in the first place? It's a completely radical change of thinking and a radical change of heart. And he had a new way of seeing what matters most. This reminds me of one of my favorite missionaries. And one of the reasons why I'm a missionary today is Jim Elliott. So I don't know if many of you are familiar with him. But one of his famous quotes is that Jim Elliott said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. 
So in other words, you are not being foolish if you take whatever you treasure in this world, cars, houses, temporary relationships, sinful desires, things that think will bring you joy and happiness but are going to be a vapor. When you cling on to those things for your hope, for your security, that you place your trust in those things, you are no fool to give those up to God to gain what you cannot lose. Paul found something so motivating and so life-changing that it catapulted him into a life of service, not just out of sacrifice, but out of love. We lose, as in we stop valuing worthless temporary things to gain what? To gain Christ. So how did Paul now evaluate everything he once treasured? He calls them rubbish. This word literally means dung. Texans don't shy away from messy things like that. You go walking in a field behind cows and you find a lot of things you don't want to step in. That's what Paul took his list of qualifications in his resume and he now categorized them as that. There was no longing. There was no looking back. Do you remember Lot's wife? Does anybody remember what happened to her when they left Sodom and Gomorrah? She turned into a pillar of salt. Even I read that passage and I'm like, wow, turned into a pillar of salt. That is very strict punishment. If God turned us into salt every time we sinned, then we'd just be a giant salt factory here. Lot's wife longed for what they were leaving behind. She was given specific orders to not look back, but it was the longing of her heart. What she desired were the things that they were told to leave behind. And she was turned into a pillar of salt as a reminder to everyone else. By the grace of God, he is very patient with us. And we have not been turned into salt yet. Paul looked at everything as worthless. It's interesting, the word loss that he uses here, it only appears in two passages in the New Testament. The first time is actually when he was talking about when he was shipwrecked at sea. And the crew had to take all of um, the cargo, and they had to throw it overboard. And the second time that he uses this word for loss is here in this passage. It's almost as though he has this concept of abandoning cargo in mind. In Fiji, boating is a part of everyday life. Um, It's incredibly sobering, but almost everybody we know knows someone that has been lost at sea, even in our own local church. One of the young women there lost her father at sea. They're very familiar with the idea that storms can pick up out of nowhere and can get out of control. And if a ship is being weighed down in that type of storm, what do you have to do to keep that boat from sinking? You toss cargo overboard. Their crew will abandon anything necessary so that they won't sink. And Paul has no mourning over the things that he lost. His joy is full, even though his life was hard. Um, I really think Paul had two concepts in mind. It appears that the first one is that his former life was like that cargo that needed to be thrown overboard for those on the ship to be saved. The second concept is that if any one of you imagine that you have a giant barge 
one that carries shipping containers, and you're in charge, and you pull up to a port, and you, your cargo is rocks. You have literally tons of rocks. And then you pull into the port, and the people that are running the port say, you know what? We just have a bunch of these shipping containers full of diamonds, floor to ceiling. We have hundreds of them. They're full of diamonds, and they're yours if you would like them. Go ahead and raise your hand. How many of you would say, oh, no, 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 my, my ship is full. I have all the cargo I need. Would any of you say that? Would any of you say, no, my cargo of rocks is more precious than this cargo of diamonds? And they're offering it to you for free. All you have to do is dump the cargo. You just have to dump the rocks. The sad thing is, even though that's an easy decision, even in my own life, how many areas of my life am I not willing to give something up for Christ? Because I have an incredibly skewed perspective of whatever that thing might be. What is it for you? What do you hold on to thinking that there's some sort of merit or favor from God? Maybe it's some of the things you do. You don't strengthen your position before God because you help out at church and lead a small group and read Christian books and memorize um, books of the Bible. These are all good things, but ultimately God is looking at your heart. Those things do not have any intrinsic value in and of themselves. The difference is whether or not your heart has been regenerated. And if you're saved, or if you are not saved, none of those things are going to please God. Because God cares about the motivation of your heart. Paul did not stop doing good works when he followed Christ. But he did stop trusting and depending on those works. He abandoned his old way of thinking that following the law would help him earn salvation. And Paul warned and wanted the Philippians to start trusting in Christ. And he wanted them to abandon whatever it is they had placed their hope in. And to start counting everything other than Christ as loss. And that brings us to our second point. So the first goal or purpose is to trust Christ. And the second goal is to know Christ. Paul wanted them to value Christ above everything else so that knowing Christ was their highest priority. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. When Paul walked away from his old life, he didn't move to more spiritual uncertainty. He found something that was so much greater than before, just like those diamonds. He didn't regret or mourn losing the rocks. He had something that was worth so much more. And this is... In this passage, it's interesting because it's the only one where he uses a personal expression, my Lord. So typically when Paul was writing a letter, he would say, our Lord, including everyone that he is writing to. But this is so intensely personal. He is saying, in Christ Jesus, my Lord. He is expressing the intensity of his feeling. It was a 180 degree turn from what he had before when he was dead inside. And now he's alive and he considers everything else other than Christ as loss. 
to know and to be known by God is worth giving up everything. When you look at the word knowing here, it's the Greek word gnosis, which is seeking to know and inquiry and investigation. It's that you would be so compelled to find out whatever you possibly could about something or someone. So how do you do that with Jesus Christ? In any relationship, you have to talk to them and listen to them. You have to know what they like. You have to know what they dislike. Know what they're passionate about. And for Paul, he actually, God actually spoke to him on the road to Damascus, but how do we know God today? How can we hear the voice of God? I'm going to give you four practical ways to know Jesus Christ. And they're very simple. The first is to read your Bible. Do you realize that this is how God speaks to you? In Fiji, when they get a Bible, they treasure it. Some of them literally hug it because they are so hard to find and so expensive to obtain. They treasure their Bibles because when they know they open that book, it is the voice of God speaking to them. When I meet people in Fiji that are going through difficult life situations, they don't care about Michael's opinion. They always ask me, what does God say about this? What does God want me to do? If you want to know what God is saying to you, you have it right in front of you. Not only that, you probably have it on your phone, your computer. You probably have half a dozen of them lying around. You can know what God says at any given time. That's the first way you can know Jesus, to memorize and meditate on his word. Meditation is memorizing it for the purpose of application. So don't just be a hearer, but live out what he tells you to do as you read his word. Number two, to pray. This is how you speak to God. Pray without ceasing. Don't just pray when you are about to eat food. Praying is actually a form of worship before you eat food, so don't stop doing that. You're worshiping God as you're expressing gratitude, but pray throughout the day because he's ready and available. The God of the universe is able and willing to continue doing everything he's able to do while listening to your prayer. That's how you know Jesus Christ. And number three, to fellowship. You cannot grow an intimate knowledge of Jesus Christ apart from experiencing the fellowship of the body of Christ. I'm so glad that you guys are here and have not distanced yourself from the local fellowship. This body of believers is one of the key primary ways that God uses for you to know his son, Jesus Christ. It's through your relationships with one another. And number four is evangelism and discipleship. Ultimately, evangelism is about worship. It's showing honor to our Lord and Savior, lifting Jesus up for all to see. So when you evangelize and disciple, you're proclaiming the good news of the gospel. You're sharing Christ with others, and you're helping them grow in spiritual maturity to walk with Christ. And I want to take a minute to point out there's a difference between knowing about Christ versus knowing Christ intimately. There are many people who just know about Christ. If you guys, some of you have moved from other states, but if you grew up in the Bible Belt, there's a good chance that your parents took you to church, or at least you had a lot of friends that went to church. There are a lot of people that have head knowledge. There are a lot of people that they might 
know the gospel. They might even read the Bible. They might even do some of the things we talked about with praying and going to church and maybe even sharing the gospel with other people without actually believing it themselves. But truly knowing Christ is valuing and worshiping him above everything else. This is one of the scariest stories to me in the New Testament is the rich young ruler. He knew so much. I feel like so many people in Texas and America and even in Fiji, they, they can have an idea of who God is. They can have knowledge and be so close. But when they actually encounter Jesus Christ, they make a decision. And it's a calculated decision. And they say, ah, well, am I willing to give up everything? They know about him, but they don't know him as Savior. And we're going to talk about this in a little bit, but I want you to prayerfully consider if you could potentially be in that category today. Before Paul's conversion, he knew all about God. He knew the law better than most. He knew how to follow the law. He likely taught the Old Testament. He understood it. He could quote it. He could point out who followed it well. He could tell you who followed it poorly. But it was a different kind of knowledge. To know Christ like Paul did after he was saved is to have fellowship with him. It's not theoretical. It's intimate. This knowledge isn't simply to know facts about Jesus, but it's a personal, dynamic, meaningful relationship which is made possible through faith. Jonathan Edwards said, um, said something that I thought was really helpful. In my preparation for this, I came across a sermon that he gave um, and he explained the difference between natural and spiritual understanding. Natural knowledge is just simply information that resides in your head. Spiritual knowledge moves from your head to your heart. And anybody can have a rational knowledge about anything. Non-believers can go to a university and take classes on religious studies or study the Bible. And someone can attend church their entire life and even agree with the teaching of God's word without ever truly knowing Christ. Natural knowledge is learning about God without ever submitting your life to Jesus Christ and being conformed to his will. That's just checklist Christianity. And with an absence of a personal relationship and a connection with the Lord, you may even look to behavior modification to prove the validity of your faith. You wrongfully compare yourself with other people around you, engage, well, do I look good enough for God? But you don't know God. And he doesn't know you. If you only have natural knowledge. In complete contrast, spiritual knowledge is much more than this. It comes from the illumination of our minds and the regeneration of our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit. Spiritual knowledge doesn't just stop with changing your thinking. It penetrates the deepest corners of your heart. Jonathan Edwards says, this is the sense of the heart where you see, taste, and feel. It's not merely academic. That is life-changing. But there, there's a warning for us here. If you know the truth but are not changed by the truth, if knowledge of Jesus Christ does not transform our hearts, do you know what's going to happen? 
when we stand before the judgment seat of God, we are going to receive greater condemnation. Those of us have been given so much. If knowledge of Jesus Christ does not transform our hearts, it makes our condemnation greater. Hearing sermons at church, studying the Bible, learning doctrine, all of those things should lead us to greater spiritual knowledge and deeper worship. And the purpose of knowing God, the reason why we want to learn more about Jesus Christ is that we would grow in love, which will transform the way we live. And here's the beauty of this. When you truly know Christ, it's actually more refreshing. You're giving up a list of duties, and then, which all of those can't save you, but you're trading that for the most precious intimate relationship you could possibly ever desire. So you are dying to self, but you're receiving something so much sweeter. Don't accept the rocks. Trade it for diamonds. God uses our minds to allow us to understand the glorious truths of the gospel, but it must transform our affections. Paul does not draw a distinction between doctrine and Christian living. A true Christian lives according to what they believe. So there's no separation. You hear it, you believe it, and you live it. And Edwards continues by saying that there can be no love without knowledge. It's not according to the nature of the human soul to love an object which is entirely unknown. So in other words, you're not going to fall in love with something or someone that you don't know anything about. Think about all the teenagers, no offense teenagers, um, it, it, my wife and I used to be in high school ministry and they'd always be talking about their celebrity crushes or, oh my goodness, this person is so, so amazing and so dreamy and all that stuff. And they have no idea who that person actually is. But before you teenagers just feel bad, what about you men? No entire sports rosters, and off the top of your head could say, oh, so-and-so got traded, blah, 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 blah. These are their stats. How awesome are them? I know them. And then if you go and show up and see them, if you say, see LeBron James or Jose Altuve or someone in a restaurant, you're like, oh my goodness, I know you. What are they going to say? Depart from me. I never knew you. Never knew you. They don't know you. We don't know so many of these people that we invest so much of our lives in. We think that we know them intimately because we learn facts about them, but there is no relationship. They're going to get freaked out and call their security guards and say, could you please help? I would like to eat my meal. There's no relationship So if you come to church and you hear doctrine, it only lands in your mind, but it does not transform your actions, emotions, your love, your daily life, and your worship, then you have a problem. If this is the case for you, this is where you will end up receiving condemnation instead of salvation. When you come as someone whose heart is illuminated by the work of the Holy Spirit and you hear doctrine, it will move you. It will stir you up deep inside and you will be transformed from the inside out. Knowledge of Christ should convict you of sin. It should make you long to see his face. 
to know his ways more. Just like we read in the Psalms this morning, to put yourself in his path, to worship and to know him like Zacchaeus, who he would climb up a tree to get a glimpse of Christ, and then once he heard, he acted in obedience. Like Moses, he just wanted to see the glory of God, and Joshua just wanted to spend his time in the tabernacle of meeting, or like the Apostle Paul. This is spiritual knowledge. This is knowing God. This is being known by God. And maybe you've sat up at night and you've wondered if you're really saved. Maybe for some of you, you've just assessed your life and you've said, well, is this it? Is this as good as life could possibly get? Do I really know God? Does God know me or am I being self-deceived? Maybe you've been working so hard to be a good Christian, but you feel like you're failing. You look at everybody around you and you wonder why you're the only one that's struggling. Is it possible for you to have assurance? Is it possible for you to really know Jesus Christ and to be known by him in an intimate way, just like Paul knew Christ? Paul says it is possible. He knows God in an all-consuming, intimate, tangible, life-altering way, and it's so compelling and fulfilling that nothing else compares. It was possible for Paul, and it's possible for you as well. If you're sitting here this morning and you feel like you don't truly know Christ intimately, um, I'd like to offer up one possibility. It could be because you're struggling with ungodliness. Ungodliness sounds very serious, because it is. Ungodliness is a very big deal, but what's deceiving about ungodliness is that it can be so tricky or deceiving that it can be as simple as you going throughout your day without any thought of God, without submitting your will to God. Some people might call that a normal day. They get up, they pray, they read their Bible, and then from the moment devotions are done, they don't consult God for anything they do. They don't consider what he would have them do. They don't think about it in their interactions with other people. They're living in ungodliness. This is why praying without ceasing is such a significant part of the spiritual disciplines we were talking about earlier. You can't expect to thrive in your relationship with Jesus Christ if you're not praying, reading your Bible, sharing the gospel, and enjoying fellowship in the context of the local church. Because ultimately, I've heard the example that the Christian life is like trying to go up a down escalator. How many of you have ever ever tried that before? As a kid, I used to try it all the time. I'm with you. Thank you for being honest. When you run up a down escalator, it's hard, it doesn't work, and you'll often fall and look foolish. It is very hard to walk with Christ in this world. If you just stand still, you're going to go the wrong way. It requires spiritual sweat and effort. It's what the Puritan John Owen reminds us in the mortification of sin. He says, you must be killing sin or sin will be killing you. I'll say it again, you must be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. The spiritual disciplines, to distinguish from legalism, these are not, to be spiritually disciplined, that is not legalism. 
to honor Christ by reading your Bible, praying, by sharing the gospel, by being involved in a local uh, church body. That's not legalism. They're actually some of the greatest means of grace because they are the way that you grow in a deep personal knowledge and a close friendship with Christ. So now what? Maybe you're hearing this and you're saying, great, Michael, I'm all in. I want this. I've always wanted this. I've had moments or glimpses of that type of relationship, but I want it like Paul had it. How do I get from here to there? And the answer is consistent, faithful feeding of your soul. Those who long for God, who spend their whole lives in daily pursuit of him, when we read the letters from Paul, we see that he was incredibly intentional about his walk with Christ. Paul was killing sin. When Paul saw something, when you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 through 27, he's saying, if there's any hindrance in my life, I'm going to get rid of it. I'm training for the Olympics. If there is anything that is not contributing to this race, then abandon it. I don't want anything to do with that. Is that how you are pursuing Christ? Willing to cut off anything that could possibly be a distraction? Fathers, is this how you're shepherding your children? I I have to shepherd my four-year-old daughter to be careful of vanity already. She puts chapstick on, and then my seven-year-old son Taj says, "Um, I think Tori puts the chapstick on because she doesn't know that it's not lipstick. And then Tori says, that's right. She, she's already struggling with so many of the things that Americans and people all around the world are struggling with. Well, I think this makes me feel pretty. She's investing in chapstick right now. Her little heart is consumed with that. What are you consumed with? What are the things that on a daily basis have just become habitual? They're a part of your life and you're putting time and energy into, and some of the things may not be sinful, But what are the things that are? What do you need to abandon so that you can chase after Christ so that you would know Christ? The first goal is to trust Christ. The second is to know Christ. And our third and final goal is to worship Christ. And if you trust Christ and truly know him, what's the natural result going to be? You're going to worship him. Let's look again at verse 8. When Paul says he counts all things as loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord, that's the language of worship. To count all things as loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. To know Christ is to worship him. And you can't separate doctrine from worship. Or I should say you shouldn't try to separate doctrine from worship. Theology is for everyone because worship is for everyone. A.W. Tozer says theology leads to doxology. Understanding God rightly leads to worshiping him rightly. When you grow in your knowledge of biblical doctrine, you should be growing in your worship of Christ. So what is it? What is worship? And the old English word um, is worth-ship. The the most common Greek word in the New Testament for worship shows 
reverence or bowing down to God. A second Greek term for worship is to serve, to minister. Both of them are used in Matthew 4.10. Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So when you're worshiping, you are attributing worth to something. This is a reverent devotion and allegiance pledged to God. And we worship the things that we deem valuable. It's showing honor to God, thanking Him, finding joy in Him. When you worship Jesus Christ, you are attributing worth or value to Him. So your worship does not determine His value, but you're simply acknowledging His infinite value. You worship God when you show appreciation to Him. It's having a heart of gratitude, gratefulness, and thanksgiving. And it's not only an attitude of reverence or a posture of your heart, but it's also an action of service to the God who is worthy. And worship begets worship, which means the more you worship, the more your heart desires to worship. So I, I want to ask you, if some of you feel as though you are not worshiping Christ, it could be that you are not worshiping Christ. And if you want to start worshiping Christ more, then you need to start showing gratitude, appreciation, and thankfulness to God so that you will begin to worship more often. It sounds kind of like a circle, but it's a very hard rut to get out of. The more you worship, though, the easier it becomes to worship. So go to one of your pastors here in the church. Go to one of your friends you know is walking with the Lord and be candid and open and just say, you know what? I'm in a rut right now. My heart has grown cold. And one of my favorite biblical counseling professors, Ernie Baker, continually emphasized that the problem that all people have is a worship problem. Why do we struggle with sin? It's because of wrong worship. Because you're going to serve the one that you worship. And many of us struggle with sin because we are sitting on a throne on our heart instead of having a right posture before God. So imagine that there is a tiny Lego-sized throne on your heart. Imagine that. What is sitting on that throne right now for you personally? I want everybody to say it out. Just kidding. Don't say it out loud. Um, you don't need to say it right now, but in your mind, think, what am I worshiping? What is on that throne? For some people, you might say, well, it's not sin. It's nothing bad. So I wouldn't be embarrassed to say it. But maybe it's your children, if you're a parent. Maybe it's your spouse, if you're a husband or a wife. Maybe it's money, your job. Whatever that might be, we are all worshiping something. And we often serve our flesh instead of falling before Jesus Christ, who is our King. Why do we not grow in sanctification to be more like Jesus? It's because we have misplaced our worship. Ernie Baker, my professor, wrote, if you want help with some of these stubborn desires, you have to replace them through the power of the Holy Spirit with superior desires. And I believe that happens through worship. If false worship is the problem, then true worship is the solution. So how do you worship Christ? You meditate on, you sing about, you rejoice in, you pray to, you become thankful for it, and you read about how great and awesome Jesus Christ is. 
and you live to the glory of your heavenly Father. True worship is surrendering all of yourself to do everything to the glory of God. And the tools that we have to do this are scripture, hymn books, solid music, read through the Psalms like we did this morning, pray through the Psalms if you feel as though your heart has grown cold. Read, th- read theology books, but not only for basic natural knowledge, but for intimate spiritual knowledge. And then enjoy creation. Praise God as you see how awesome he is with everything he's created. Look at the animals, the birds of the air. And praise God. Take time from your busy lives to just sit back and actively worship God. And I just want to ask you to quickly assess why are you doing what you're doing? Are you doing it because you're so overwhelmed for God who saved you from your sin? Or have you developed patterns of doing things because of the expectations of other people around you? Is it to look good? Jesus lovingly confronted the rich young ruler not because of how wealthy he was. The wealth was actually irrelevant. It was idolatry of wealth that the rich ruler worshipped. And the rich ruler did not value Christ above all else. He walked away with temporary wealth and a perishing soul. But as we see in verse 8, Paul did not place a high value on temporary things. He believed there was nothing more valuable than knowing Jesus Christ. Paul turned and walked away from it all, just like God calls us to do. So let me ask you, are you prepared to lose everything? Are you prepared to lose all that you have? Or is there something that you're still holding on to? Is there something on the throne of your heart that keeps you from loving and worshiping Christ? The sailors on the ship that's sinking, they don't despise the cargo, but they do value their lives. And in this sense, Paul is not a radical Christian. This is not an exception or something that super Christians or weird Christians like missionaries do. Um, We acknowledge that missionaries can often be weird. Um, This isn't something that only a few select people do. It's not like, oh, um, God's going to call you, you, and you. I want you guys to abandon it all, or I want you to give up whatever makes you comfortable. Now, the rest of you keep living exactly as you are. That's not the call to the Christian life. It is an absolutely radical call for every single one of us. If anyone will follow Christ, they must count all things as loss. You cannot expect to stay afloat if as you're tossing the cargo overboard, you say, oh, no, no, I I wanted that, and you grab onto it. You will sink to the depths of the sea if you do that. You need to abandon whatever is keeping you from worshiping Christ in Christ alone, and don't regret it. Don't look back. Paul warns the Philippians, and he's warning us today, there is no hope found in anything else other than Jesus Christ. Have you counted everything else's loss? Are you trusting in Christ alone for your salvation? Do you just know about Christ? Or do you truly know him? Is Jesus Christ the greatest affection and the highest desire of your heart? 
For the non-believer, Jesus Christ is their judge and will always be their judge unless they submit to him. But for the believer, Jesus Christ is our Lord, Savior, King, and friend who will never leave us or forsake us. And Paul gave up everything to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. We have received the righteousness of Christ. We've been given the Holy Spirit. We've been given the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. So as I conclude, I just want to encourage you that this is the same power that transforms us into the image of Christ so that we're no longer slaves to sin, but slaves to righteousness. And the more that you worship him, the more you're going to become like him. You will treasure him. And this is the point of our lives, to fear God and obey his commandments, to be set apart to proclaim Christ with our words and deeds so that his name would be made great, so that in everything do, whether we eat or drink, we do all to the glory of God. Paul died to self because he lived for Christ. Paul took up his cross daily and followed Christ, and his satisfaction and joy were not based on the fleeting pleasures of this world, but in the eternal riches found in Christ. And ultimately, those who choose to live for this world, they're never really happy anyway. They worry about losing their treasure. For them, when death comes, it's going to be a thief stealing something from them, taking their treasure. But that's not the case for the believer. For us, our treasure is in Christ, which can never be stolen. It'll never lose value. For us, when death comes, we have the opportunity to look at it as a welcome friend ushering us into the arms of our loving Savior, who we love more than anyone else. It's the point of this sermon And this is the point of our lives, that we would treasure Christ above all else, that we would count all else as loss, that we would see the surpassing value of Jesus Christ as he truly is, and that we would worship Jesus Christ as our King. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning knowing that there are so many distractions in all of our lives, not only in America, but also in Fiji and around the world. Although Satan is doing his best to try to distract us and detract us, trying to help us misapply value on temporary things instead of treasuring Christ and Christ alone, I pray that you would help every single person in this room to submit to you, to enjoy walking with you, to trust, know, and worship you. We love you, Lord. We thank you for your love and grace. In your name we pray. Amen.